From the book of Daniel, chapter 7, selected verses, beginning with verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. In my vision at night, as I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The word of the Lord. From the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. And would you stand for the gospel reading? This is from the gospel of John, beginning with verse 33 of chapter 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, your word. We're grateful for your truth. We're grateful for who you are and for this day. Today, we um, are grateful for this church, uh, for your salvation, for your work in our hearts, that you are to us Father and Savior and Spirit. We are grateful for uh, togetherness, the ability to be here and worship together. We love you for loving us. We are grateful that you have put life in us and that uh, by your presence we are changed. We love you and pray for your blessing on our time together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. 
You may be seated. I'm not a very instructions-oriented person, so. And I need to get this a little higher. Uh, you could tell that my trifocals were not working with it. Oh, it's got to get higher a different way. Will it go down here? Okay. Yeah, I think it's running out of space, too. Okay. Uh, let me get to where I'm supposed to be. Uh, it, it would be really um, uh, a bad thing for me not to say in the beginning that uh, uh, I'm always encouraged by how this band of people come together. Ellen and I were supposed to do the setup this morning, and we got here, and everything was out and ready to go. We had to put a few chairs in place. But uh, I am grateful for Jacob and Langley. Uh, it was very powerful. Sometimes it's nice, as we said earlier, just to... Uh, break things down a little, just back it off. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Um, David was here early and was setting things up, and Tyler and Hannah, even out of town, were sending messages and organizing things, and grateful for that. And um, I'm going to leave somebody out. David Moran was helping tremendously, and uh, uh, I've even had uh, uh, the promise of being heckled during this time. So everybody's contributing something, and, and I'm grateful for that. Okay, well, yeah. I mean, after you break a stand, what, what does heckling do? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, we uh, are grateful that Preston has the opportunity this morning to preach at Sanctuary Church, sort of our mother church. Uh, they are our sending church, and we're grateful for that, and it's home to Preston. Um, well, this is home to Preston. I told him not to get too comfortable there, <laughs> to enjoy it but not get comfortable. And he said we couldn't push him away. So I'm, I'm grateful they will be back. But uh, we're here together today, and uh, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. We'll look uh, at the verses, the, those five verses, 33 through 37. Um, uh, but we'll look at some other verses earlier in the chapter to kind of set it up. This time of year, we're more than accustomed to hearing Christmas songs that um, bring back a lot of memories, some good, some maybe not so good. But these songs return every year. They're old standard versions, and there's always some new artist that puts their stamp on a new version. But no matter what form they reappear in, something familiar in them brings up something, uh, some familiar sentiments about the season. We sing most of these from memory. Uh, we kind of know the words, kind of like we know our own names. They roll off our tongues and through our lips on melodies that are etched deeply in our minds, if, if not in our hearts. These old songs are part of our learned culture of anticipation, of Santa's round-the-world and one-night trip. Did, did, did y'all ever imagine that as a child? I used to ask my dad as I was falling asleep every Christmas Eve, does he really do that all in one night? And my dad got into, well, you know, there are time zones, son. And I'm still thinking, those are still pretty fast reindeer. But they also put us in uh, anticipation of the joy of the coming of Jesus. There are songs that uh, came to my mind as I thought about Christ the King Sunday, uh, which is as Hannah stole from me. It is the last <laughs> on our church calendar year. It is not the last, obviously, of our calendar, but it is the last Sunday of our calendar year. We start a new year 
next Sunday uh, with Advent. This is the last Sunday in ordinary time. So we begin next Sunday in Advent, and Advent is obviously about anticipation. We are looking forward to, and we are uh, assured of. So uh, thinking about these songs and the memories and how they come to our minds this time of year, I was thinking of things like, Come to Bethlehem and see Him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. Gloria in excelsis Deo. And then there's the one, I'll spare you all the Noel, 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 Noels. But then it says, born as the king of Israel. Perhaps less well-known and easily more intimate is a song called Joseph's Song that ponders this divine, if unusual, arrangement God has ordained to get his savior son into the world. Joseph is in awe of the unfolding plan and the smallness he feels in the face of the tallness of the task before him. Michael Card wrote Joseph's song, and he imagines Joseph pon- Joseph's ponderings like this. How could it be this baby in my arms, sleeping now so peacefully? The Son of God, the angels said. How could it be? Lord, I know he's not my own, not of my flesh, not of my bone. Still, Father, let this baby be the son of my love. Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the Son of God? Lord, for all my life I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? How can I raise a king? How could it be? Joseph's question is not so different from mine this morning and yours. We'll get to that uh, soon, but let's, as I said earlier, let's go back a little bit and stay focused on the message of this baby becoming man, being a king, and not just a king, but the king. Uh, Songs employ phrases, these songs for this time of year employ phrases like, Christ the Lord, the newborn king, the king of Israel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, born a child and yet a king. And our scriptures use phrases like this one, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In this gospel passage today, these five little verses, we read the story of Jesus' trial, such as it was, and beneath the ugly, raw edges of this story's fabric, God unveils for us the natural uh, beauty and the nature of Christ's kingship. But to see the beauty, we first need to see the selvage at the story's perimeter. Within these five verses of today's gospel reading, we see the devious nature of the religious leaders of the Jews in their determination to execute Jesus. We also see the flagging character of Pilate in his fearing the disappointment of the people. And we see an exchange between Jesus and Pilate in which it's clear that Pilate had no concept of the relationship between truth and leadership, nor did he understand the idea of a spiritual kingdom because he was rooted in the physical. He was grounded in the physical. Rule by force, the army with the most and biggest horses wins. It calls to mind the warning in Psalm 33 that a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great power, it cannot save. 
Brute strength is not the measure of power. Undisciplined power is not constructive influence. And constructive influence is not rooted in self-preservation at the expense of others. Yet all the wrong motives in the world couldn't overpower the truthful reign of the rightful king. Whether by control or brute force or rank manipulation, the leaders represented in our gospel reading today knew little to nothing about the truer strength, to borrow uh, Preston's sermon title from last week. Our gospel reading for today started with verse 33 of John, uh, the 18th chapter of John. But I want to go back to the beginning of the chapter and then bring us forward to 33 through 37. And I hope that will provide some helpful context. Verse uh, verse 1 in chapter 18 says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. There is suggestion here that Judas was familiar with watching them go into the garden. He knew they were going and uh, probably was suspicious about what they were doing. It says, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers. They were likely with him for the maintaining of order along with the temple police, the disparity between the perspective shows its head early here. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was met with brute force. And then it says, and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees were also with him, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Once again, we have this brute force, this uh, show of power being brought to bear on Jesus. Says Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked. Notice, I'm going to say that word a lot this morning because there are things that I want you to notice. I want to call your attention to them. Notice that they're coming to arrest him. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He doesn't wait for them to single him out. He steps forward and says, Something. Who is it you want? Uh, And Jesus, uh, as I said, knew what was going to happen, and so he steps out and, and confronts them. He catches them off guard and says, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they fell back and fell to the ground. I don't have a real clear sense of why that happened, except I believe that someone like Jesus embodies an interior strength that can be overwhelming and awe-inspiring. For all their training as soldiers and policemen, they were taken aback by the personhood of Jesus. I believe this is a characteristic that becomes part of us as believers as we are transformed more and more into His likeness. Again, Jesus said, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. 
This request of Jesus is only recorded by John and not in any of the other Gospels. And here's why. Verse 9 tells us that this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. And these were the words he had spoken. I have not lost one of those you gave me. This is a reference to Jesus' prayer. The conversation he had with his father preceding in the preceding chapter which took place the night before this arrest event. Jesus never lost sight of His mission, the one He was sent to fulfill. But it was something that was occasionally lost on Peter, as we're about to see. Verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, surprising that he would carry a sword since he was not part of a revolt, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, the use of the word cup would have resonated with the disciples. It appears to be something that Jesus said to refocus Peter. It doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't seem characteristic of Peter. Impulsive as he was, when confronted with this kind of tension, that he would take a sword and cut off someone's ear. But it's probably as much as anything a sign of Peter's anxiety about what's what's happening. And so Jesus uses the word cup, this cup. Uh, Let this cup pass from me, he had said. His disciples knew that he had prayed uh, as they waited and prayed for him. It says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus, and they bound him. I I wonder how hard Jesus resisted to being bound. Um, Again, the idea being they're exerting power, and Jesus is not exerting that kind of power. It's a completely different strength that we're talking about here. It says they bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And to avoid any confusion, remember Caiaphas was the father-in-law of Annas, and Annas was the current high priest. The scripture makes a point of saying that he is the high priest this year when this is happening. Caiaphas has been high priest before, and the scripture refers to him as high priest probably because he maintained the influence that he had as high priest, but he wasn't fulfilling the office in any of the things that he does here. It says Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all the people. This is a reference back to chapter 11 of John. Remember, we're at 18, and this is back at 11. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And many of the Jews see what Jesus has done, and they have faith in Him. They believe. They become followers. Some of the Jews. Some other of the Jews um, didn't believe and ran and told the priests and the Pharisees about what had happened. And this prompted the priests uh, to call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They were threatened by Jesus' miraculous signs. And this in John 11 says, Then one of them, named Caiaphas, 
This is Caiaphas, who is the current high priest at the time. Then Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And the explanation comes in the next verse. He did not say this on his own. Caiaphas wasn't speaking as a man. He wasn't speaking really as one of the rabbis. He was speaking as high priest. He was prophesying as high priest. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Uh, we're going to skip a few verses because it's really, uh, the, the verses that we're skipping are about Peter's deni- three denials of Jesus. And while they are woven into the story and important, uh, they're not as helpful in terms of getting to this, uh, the core of the passage in verse 33. So I'm going to jump to verse 19. It says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. They were likely curious about the secrecy of the teaching. Uh, Remember, Judas had seen them going into the garden, and they were probably concerned about the influential nature of the teaching because some Jews were following Jesus. Jesus responds to this by saying, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus is calling out here a procedural irregularity. If the high priest wanted evidence, there was ample opportunity for him to find it from witnesses. This would have been the normal practice at a properly conducted trial. The defense witnesses should have been called first. It may be that Annas didn't consider this examination official and thus not bound by legal rules, but either way, he was pushing the line. When Jesus said this, why question me? When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you want to answer the high priest, he demanded? Here's another irregularity. And Jesus' response is amazing. I want to get to that in a second, but I want to remind you of the the parable that says says if, um, if a man strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him also your left, which makes us a little a little bit like um, doormats. If somebody slaps you, let them slap you again. Uh, there, is, there is genuine belief that this parable refers to power, hierarchy. And I want to call your attention to it because of the context it provides us for the verses 33 through 37. The parable that says, if a man turn, slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also your left. There was a, an understanding in the day that an owner of a slave could backhand a slave. Now, the vast majority of us being right-handed, the parable follows that, okay? This doesn't apply if you're (laughs) left-handed. 
Uh, but let's go with the rule, the rule of thumb. Most people are right-handed. You can backhand a slave. You're not allowed to hit a slave with your open hand. Because the understanding is, if you do, they have a right to defend themselves. So here we have power. I think this soldier was probably um, pulling from that understanding. I can backhand Jesus. I don't know that he did. But Jesus didn't respond. I don't think he would have anyway. But to uh, backhand Jesus, there's this great likelihood um, that Jesus under... uh, Uh, certainly Jesus would have understood. There's a great likelihood that he backhanded him because what he was doing was exercising power. This is the government. These are the high priests. These are the police of the day. These are the palace police. And they're saying to Jesus, why would you talk to the high priest that way? So uh, just to finish up the parable, um, when it says, turn to him also your left, what it's saying is, see if they're willing to take you on as an equal. Power is one thing, but influence is another. And influence is never shown in inequality. It's, uh, it's shown when we uh, demonstrate equality with other people and invite them into an equality with us. So, uh, let's see. So... Uh, When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus said, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you slap me? When Jesus asked why he was being questioned about those things, and when he here questions why he was struck, He simply and calmly is asking for a fair and proper trial. But the fear and the subsequent speculations that grow in fear about him had had caused his opponents to push way past the line. It says, Then Annas sent him bound, again, to Caiaphas the high priest. Now, I personally think this is curious. Jesus had struck no one when, in fact, he had been struck. He had suggested no intent of physical threat to anyone, yet he was bound. His kingdom was not a physical kingdom, yet he was uh, deemed a threat to them. It was as if they couldn't uh, bind the true nature of his influence. So they would bind what they knew how to bind. They would bind him physically as if binding the body restricts the soul in any way. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Um, The Sanhedrin had the authority to put someone to death, but it was expected that the governor would give their approval. So he was sent from Caiaphas to the... Roman governor, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness. It's interesting to me that they're, they're violating their own consciences in every way that they possibly can, but they're obeying all of the religious rules. To avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. 
They maintain their religious procedural scruples while carrying out an unscrupulous sham of a trial. I guess it's important to maintain appearances. Despite the defilement in their own hearts, they kept the letter of the law. So Pilate came out to them, the scripture says, and asks, what charges are you bringing against this man? Now, in my imagination, which could easily be wrong, but I get caught up in these stories, in my imagination, he's asking, you know, what charges are you bringing against this man? He doesn't want to be guilty and caught up in this. So they don't really answer him. They just say, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, we wouldn't have inconvenienced you if there wasn't a problem here. So Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, of course, without the governor's approval. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. He knew the script. He knew what was happening. And then we arrive in verse 33, part of our verses for today. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him. to Keep in mind, they were outside the palace. Pilate invites Jesus inside the palace and says, Are you the king of the Jews? What Pilate really is saying is, Do you think you're the king of the Jews? Really? He's not asking a legitimate question like, um, Are you the king that the Jews have decided on. He's, at, he's making a sarcastic statement. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Pilate doesn't know what to say. So he says, am I a Jew? Your own people turned you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus says, it doesn't sound like an answer to the question. But he wasn't officially charged. Why would he defend himself? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. He's saying, you guys are using power on me. I haven't been using power with you. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Never more clearly than here, Jesus defines his kingdom in terms that explain it as other than Pilate's understanding of a kingdom. Jesus' kingdom posed no threat to the empire. He organized no revolt, though he was heading a revolution. From another place, uh, uh, the word another place is originally not from here. So he's saying, what you guys are thinking about kingdom, yeah, that's not what I'm thinking. My kingdom comes from another place. A spiritual kingdom does not need to be supported by physical force. So Pilate says, you are a king then. The scornful impudence is present in an inelegant sufficiency here. He is... He is souring on Jesus here. So you're a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born, the only reference to the birth of Jesus in this gospel, 
The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus was saying, I come from a line of royalty that is rooted in truth, not rooted in the patterns of this world, not power, not hierarchy, not who knows who, not connections, not force, but truth, which is odd to Pilate. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Briefly, these three things stick out to me. Jesus' kingdom was a kingdom of the heart. It's an internal strength that manifested itself in external change. His kingdom is about influence and invitation not about control and demand. Also, I think that we see that there is no right way to do the wrong thing. The opponents of Jesus defiled their own hearts without breaking one of their religious regulations. We can look incredibly religious and not be at all spiritual. Because the outside of the cup, so to speak, was clean. They gave no thought to the inside. Theirs was not a kingdom of character, but of hierarchy and of appearance. And then lastly, I would say that Jesus trusted His Father. His being king was not something He understood as power that allowed Him to go rogue. Rather, it humbled him and led to submission to his father, even to death. I want to ask you to reflect on Jesus' kingship and what a kingdom like his expects of those who call him king. In Joseph's song, his question was, how can it be? I said our question is the same. The answer lies in the reality that our king is a different kind of king, and his kingdom a different kind of kingdom. In this kingdom, he is king, but also father and brother. He is Lord and also servant. He is master, yet friend. On this last Sunday of the church year, before Advent, we are a people steeped in waiting Jesus didn't need to rush ahead, but he waited for his Father's plan to play out in time. We are a people who are living in anticipation, living with expectancy that his will will be done in our hearts, accomplished by his love, not force or control. And in this season of waiting and anticipation, we are witnesses to his coming Christ, our King, is enthroned in heaven and in our hearts. He is who He says He is, and He does what He promises to do. Christ, our King, Christ as King of our lives, gives us hope that the world could never give. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, 
From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth Thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born Thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now Thy gracious kingdom bring. By Thine own eternal Spirit, Rule in all our hearts alone by thine all-sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are who you say you are and that you have done for us what you said you would do for us and that you will do for us what you have promised. And our looking forward to this season of anticipation, this coming of our Savior, We are grateful that you have called us by name, that you have told us your name, and that you invite us into this story. Not just lording it over us, but being father and brother and friend with us in this story. We love you for loving us, and we thank you for coming and enduring and winning and bringing glory to your name and to the kingdom of our God, in whose name we pray, amen.